All right, I'm Adam Rappaport, and this is the Bon Appetit Foodcast. Uh, so in our April issue of Bon Appetit, uh, which hit newsstands about a week ago, we celebrate the recipes that like we literally cannot cook without right now. And I think there was 29 total, and we dedicated like a whole 40-page feature well to it. And we sort of designed it like a cookbook, big full-page photos, opposite full-page recipes with text and little illustrations and all sorts of pretty stuff. And some of them might highlight like an ingredient like tahini or kimchi that we were not cooking with 10 years ago, maybe. And now these are part of our sort of everyday pantry staples. Could be a technique like butter basting steak or crispy chicken thighs. Again, the dishes that we turn to over and over and over and just love to cook. And we want to share those with you guys. So for this podcast, we bring in... Our food director, Carla Lolly Music, with senior food editors Chris Morocco and Claire Saffitz to break it all down. Oh, wait, before we start, one more thing. We are recording a podcast uh, with one of our go-to food stylists, Rebecca Jerkovich, and our visuals editor, Ellie Jamie, about how photo shoots happen for Bon Appetit the magazine and the website and Healthyish and basically what goes into styling food, propping food shoots, uh, the recipes themselves, the photography, the lighting, all that. If you've ever wondered how it all works, please ask us questions. Hit us up at bonappetitfoodcast at gmail.com. You can ask us about cover shoots, specific dishes you saw in the magazine, anything you want to know in general about how food photography works. Uh, we want your questions. We will read them on air, and we will give you answers. All right, now let's go to food director Carla Lolly Music, senior food editors Chris Morocco and Claire Saffitz, and hear what they have to say about our April issue. So we're here we are. We're sitting here in the podcast studio with the April 2018 issue. We've been working on this for a long time. Long time. And we were just sort of trying to remember where this feature came from. And to the best of my recollection, April in the past was our Cook Like a Pro issue. And I do remember having a conversation at some point with Adam about Cook like a home cook pro and taking this whole feature inside. Mm -hmm. And I think that one of the guiding principles for me was like, if there's going to be a criticism that gets hurled at the test kitchen, it's that we're too test kitcheny. And because we, you know, have this great kitchen with all this stuff and a spice cabinet, that's like bigger than most people's, you know, libraries that we sometimes go, you know, nuts. Well, there always is the temptation that we are, you know, to just try to impress each other, frankly. There's that. Or or just you've done, you've been doing this for years. You've developed a lot of recipes. And it's like, I want just that desire to do, I want just want to do yeah. something different. Yeah. Like, hasn't everybody seen the thing? Right. And also, we fall into the trap sometimes of thinking things are easy, but it's because we're in a test kitchen where we have Gabby, who's taking care of our dishes, and 10 skillets, literally in arm's reach. 200 so, bowls. How many right. burners? 48 burners. <laughs> <Right>. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, it's really easy. You just cook this part, and then you make that sauce, and you blend it. And it's like, I don't have my blender out on my counter at home. Like, that's kind of a pain. So we have to, you know, we... It's good to check in with ourselves a little bit and make sure when we say something's easy that it really is easy, not just because it's easy in our test kitchen. Exactly. So I think the recipes as a whole in this feature, which is titled The Way We Cook Now, which is really, we really wanted to be true to not the way we in the test kitchen cook now, which is how we always cook, which is a mix of like every type of cuisine, high, low, basic, not basic, but really how we cook as home cooks. Because all of us in the test kitchen, we when we leave here, we cook at home. Claire has a small kitchen. She's talked about it before. So the way she cooks at home is like, there's a lot of one pan dinners coming oh, yeah. out of that kitchen. Everyone in the pool. Every one skillet, <laughs> no plate, eat out of the skillet sometimes. Claire is Not so resistant proud. after having dishes like going in in high rotation at work is like I refuse to clean any dishes. Chris Morocco goes home to a gluten free wife, two s small children who, who are trying to torture him on a daily by not basis by anything <laughs> ever, and he's cooking dinner. Yeah, 
And there's a like a pre-dinner snack. Oh, there's a pre-dinner snack, sure. And usually most days my kids have eaten before I get there, but it's always a question of, you know, has daddy cooked enough things mm -hmm. to have in the fridge to just sort of be called upon to at least be like, you know, put in front of their faces to then be like sneered at. Yeah, you know? the exact same thing happens to me, even though my children are older. I have the teen and the like, the pre-tween. I don't know what he <laughs> is. And they eat dinner too before I get home. But the minute I walk in the door, they oh, just like snack. come in the kitchen. They're like all like around me like little sheepdogs yeah. yeah yeah so you know that's our our life at home we really wanted to reflect in this package but also the kinds of foods that you know honestly seven years ago when I started working at Bon Appetit like I I didn't do all of these things that I do now I didn't you know, I didn't have grains in my freezer all the time. I didn't put nuts in every salad I made. I didn't use my mandolin. I certainly didn't have a pressure cooker. Um, you know, my spice cabinet looks different now. My children eat kimchi. They think it's normal. I'm grilling squid. My husband's ordering boulevardiers on Friday night. Like, the being here has impacted how I cook. And and I know that so much of that is inspired by the, the timeless things, but also the trends you know that we were, were constantly reporting on and playing around with so for me it was a challenge of like which of these things have we made like part of our repertoire and and sort of letting all of the you know flash in the pan stuff go by yeah yeah, I mean, for me, uh, you know, I grew up eating a lot of classical Italian, like Southern Italian food. And then I, you know, when I trained as a cook, like I, you know, learned a lot of classical French technique as Claire did. But when you actually sit down and think, what would I want to teach people about how to cook and eat now? It's it's a lot of this stuff. So let's start there because that's such a good point. And there's a couple of recipes in here that... I think when we were tossing around the recipe ideas, I kept referring to it as the Chris Morocco nonstick technique until <laughs> we'd had like three meetings. And then Chris was like, um, so I'm clear. <laughs> what <laughs> What is my technique? <laughs> and I was like, come on, Chris. You like blew everybody's mind with that nonstick thing in the cold pan. He's like, sure, sure, sure. Yeah, <laughs> sure. So um, so it comes up a couple of times, actually, this this. Um, in our chicken thigh recipe and this crispy fish filet recipe where it's it's actually you start in a cold pan so talk talk to us about it because it kind of blew my mind yeah it's something that we started doing i mean honestly it was a while like five or even six years ago like my first run at bon appetit and uh there's something about you know when you're cooking something that really mainly needs to cook only on one side like a chicken thigh or a skin on um boneless filet of, of uh, fish in this case i think we used black bass you know you really only need to it's going to cook like 80 or 90 percent on that one side so what happens if you put it in too hot a pan too quickly is the skin kind of tightens up on you the 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 meat or the fish kind of cups up away from the pan and now you no longer have skin in contact with the pan um, and then water forms in there and then it just kind of steams sort of almost from you know in the center of that of that piece of uh you know fish or whatever so um when you started in a cold pan though um, and the heat kind of comes up slowly, really like fat kind of tends to render at a much lower temperature than, you know, proteins start to brown. So you get the benefit of having like a longer period of time where, you know, the protein is kind of like, you know, the, the fat is starting to render out. It's, you know, barely starting to cook the actual meat. But, you know, you're actually, you know, starting to get some of the fat out of the skin so that as the temperature comes up, it can begin to crisp. And when it was the the fish, you it's the same technique for both of that cold start. And it when when you started explaining it, I was like, oh, it totally makes sense because um, that's how I cook bacon. Like mm, starting mm -hmm. bacon in a cold sure, pan is kind of the same same idea. But I had never applied it to a protein like that. With the fish, it's also in a nonstick skillet, which I think a lot of people think are like a beginner's tool of you know if you don't really know how to. If you don't really know how to cook and you're really scared about sticking, you get a nonstick pan and then you you never have to worry about that, but then eventually you'll graduate. But but your point here was like this is this is this the is right like, tool for the job. Oh, for sure. I mean, it's just the ultimate kind of insurance policy because, you know, there's a, a certain moment, you know, where you realize like, "Oh my god, okay, things are happening under that piece of fish, but I'm not sure what's happening quite. Is it too hot? Is it too cold? Things are sputtering." 
if you're doing that in a, a stainless steel skillet, then you know it's going to be stuck. You know, right. and you're going to have to ride it out to the period you know where it kind of releases away from that. But you know, if you do it in a nonstick skillet, like it's never going to be at that point where it's kind of stuck. You know, sort of flush to the pan, and you'll be able to tell like kind of what's happening under there. You'll be able to peek up, you know, peek at a, a little corner of it if you pry it up with your spatula, and um, it just makes life so much easier for that and like a zillion other things. Yeah, and also not ha- not turning the flesh onto the hot side of the pan where it could get dried out real quick the chicken comes with this like burnt lemon vinaigrette kind of charred lemon spicy vinaigrette pan sauce which is like we love these acidic flavors especially with the chicken but with the fish you paired it with um a very customizable salsa verde which honestly salsa verde was like a thing salsa verde has always been a thing it's like not a new sauce but all of a sudden it became a thing that was like everywhere and then we were doing salsa verdes on everything and then i remember a couple years ago being like no more salsa verdes we're done (laughs) like i can't do another salsa verde yeah but then you come back to it because it's like well actually it's a really great sauce and it goes with everything um but i like what chris did which was sort of breaking it down to an herby thing uh a tangy thing yeah, like a earthy kind of umami thing, like garlic anchovy, you know, just like getting getting those kind of like, you know, that range of flavor in there, you know, allows you to kind of substitute in whatever you want. Yeah. So it's any tender herb, chopped pickles, and then you give a bunch of options. Um, Which could include like olives, like we're including right. as like pickles, like olives, capers, like pickly things, not like pickles, you know, not your necessarily half sours, but you could but do you that could, too. Oh, for sure. Shown. Claire, you were going to say something. Yeah, I was going to say it's such a great technique, the cold nonstick, for a lot of reasons. And I think it's very practical for home cooks because I think one thing I hear from friends and sort of like people who are just starting out is that that like moment of laying a piece of protein into a hot pan with oil, it can be a little bit um, nerve wracking. And you risk some splatter and like Chris says, and then the protein kind of seizes up. So this is like a very non-threatening way of cooking. It's like you just put it in the pan and put it on the stove and turn it on. Um, And also I think people get nervous about overcooking fish. And so this method is great because as Chris said, you're cooking it, you know, over 75% of the way on the first side. And with a piece of fish where there's translucency, like with salmon, you can really watch the cooking happen. And so you see the flesh turn opaque starting from the bottom and it works its way up the sides of the fish to the top, which is great because it's like, unlike with steak where it's already brown, like you're like, what's happening in there? I don't know how much cooking has happened. Like you're really watching it. Or when it's in the oven, you're like, I don't know. It's six minutes. Right. And then you're poking at it, trying to be like, what am I, (laughs) what does this feel like? What is this supposed to be? So it's great because it is kind of foolproof. And then when you start to see that it's, you know, basically opaque all the way and just the center is translucent. I don't know if it is in the recipe, Chris, but like what I do at home is I'll turn off the pan and then flip the and fish flip. over and let it kind of carry over as the pan starts to cool off. Yeah, I mean, I think we do that maybe for 30 seconds, but we don't ta- we don't shut off the heat. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But I mean, it's it's only over like kind of moderate heat to begin with. Right. And I think people sort of have this like, oh, chefs with their heat and their, you know, this and that and flames everywhere. But, you right. know, at the end of the day, like for the crispiest kind of like fish skin, the crispiest chicken skin, it's moderate heat for longer. Yeah, you know, There's a lot it's of not fat in the chicken high thigh. heat right. and fast. Right, one you, thing I'm always conscious of is not filling people's kitchens up with smoke because like my, you know, not many people have like huge industrial fume hoods in their kitchen, Right. certainly I do not. And so it's sort of like, yeah, we all love cooking pork chops and getting that nice caramelization, but it makes a lot of smoke, same thing with steak. So it's nice to have a method for cooking protein on the stove that doesn't you know, it smoke out your whole It doesn't kitchen. really do that. And, and I, I mean, I joke with these guys all the time. Like, I would never cook steak at home. Like, never. <laughs> you know? Like, white tiles as far as the eye can see. White countertops. Like, I, you know, I'm not in it to, like, have to clean for 20 minutes after, you know, dinner. So You would do it Agreed. outside, though. <laughs> I would certainly do it outside. Um, so, okay. So, now there's another another technique that we have, we have talked about and embraced and, like, kind of from very early on in the Bon Appetit run that that Adam was responsible for, um, which is another super restauranty thing, the saucy, glossy pasta that is not overcooked, still al dente, but there's this like delicious, saucy, buttery, oily, emulsified sauce in the pan. And when Claire did the pasta primer last October, 
we really like drilled down on this. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's there's this pantry pasta that was actually developed by um, Andy Baragani, who was just he was straight up too busy to be with us today. So um, <laughs> we're gonna represent his dish, which I love because sort of taking that idea of something super restauranty, but then making it super home cook friendly because mm-hmm. of what his approach was just like it's a pantry pasta right so um claire talk us through that technique sure this i love because it is a restaurant technique but it really does actually make it easier at home it kind of cuts out a step if you can sort of adopt this practice i do i do think ultimately it is easier at home because you you don't have to go through that extra, like, whole, taking a huge pot of boiling water over to the sink, draining mm-hmm. it in a colander, creating all this steam, and then going back and dressing your pasta. So this method cuts that out, and it basically you go from the big pot of boiling water with your pasta, and you undercook it. So in our recipes, we usually say, like, cook according to package instructions, but cut off two minutes. So it's it has, if you cut through the pasta, you have a little ring of like starch where the pasta isn't fully cooked through right and you transfer directly into a skillet or we often use like a high-sided dutch oven because for like a strand pasta or actually really any shape when you're tossing it all together especially if you're cooking a pound yeah which is like Ooh, yeah you know it's a lot for more than for four people or more just go ahead and make the whole pound of pasta so i just did this and unfortunately did it um on a video where I was on Friday where I was like, oh yeah, we're filming a video and it was 12 ounces of parpadelle mm-hmm. and I was making fettuccine alfredo and I did it in a skillet. Like mm-hmm. I didn't set myself up with all these rules that we've made, which is that honestly I would have been so much better off with the Dutch oven, but mm-hmm. I was like, oh, but the, it's harder for the camera to see over the edge of the pot. Like I'll be fine in the skillet. Meanwhile, we're like filming it and I'm tossing and tossing and the like, noodles are just flying. flying. I was like, well, yeah, this is what happens. So use a Dutch oven. Right. So right. it's a real- High-sided or <laughs> even a straight-sided skillet, large right. skillet, but something 12 inches. Uh, if you're using a skillet, you need something that big. Or a high-sided Dutch oven because you, you can avoid like pasta flipping all over the place. Um, and so if you're using strand pasta, tongs are really great for transferring pasta from the pot into the Dutch oven. Um, and if you're using a shorter shape, then a spider is great. Right. But you want some of that water to piggyback on uh, on the pasta into the whatever sauce you're making. So this method is really like you finish cooking the pasta with the sauce so that the, the flavor, the, the sauce clings to the pasta better um, and, and the flavor is sort of like more integrated. Um, and it's great because as the pasta finishes cooking and usually we include anywhere from a half cup to a full cup or even more pasta water. So you kind of add it as needed to help the pasta finish cooking without having it really like swim around too much. Yeah. Um, and so the pasta finishes cooking and it continues to release its starch, which thickens the sauce. And then, of course, once the pasta is done, um, typically you add some kind of grated cheese, like a hard grated cheese, like right. parm or pecorino, which emulsifies into the sauce. It kind of melts into that extra bit of, bit of pasta water that's in there, even if you use something tomato based. Right. Um, and it also it just that's what makes this very, very glossy because Beautiful it's actually sauce. melting into there's enough fat from the sauce that you've built in the pan and then you've got the liquid of the pasta water and whatever else juicy ingredients are in there and then the cheese is melting and it base it, it is making an emulsification yes um in the pan so in this in this one so it's all of those same rules apply to this pantry pasta but it's it's sort of a reminder that you can make something restaurant worthy with nothing and that growing up, that was such a thing that my mom would do that would blow my mind. I would be like, there's no food. There seems like there's nothing in the house to eat. And she would like go and scrummage around and like come back out. And then in, in 20 minutes, I would be eating like this fantastic bowl of pasta. I was like, she's amazing. <laughs> but Andy relied on, you know, stuff that we you always should have in the house. Um, garlic, olive oil. So it's basically an aglio olio that's mounted with anchovies and um, red pepper flakes and then he finished his with a lot of parsley but I think you know it's one of those times where you go into the herb drawer and you're like right just use this yeah you can add capers like a lot of the ingredients that Chris talked about in the salsa verde can are make great addition to a very simple pasta sauce and another thing that is in this recipe that we do a lot here in our pasta recipes is add a little pat of butter at the end yeah which adds that like extra rich glossy finish um, and is really like just another sort of like good restaurant tip. I mean, 
we've we talked about this for pasta primer. It's like if you're going to make pasta, you kind of have to add a lot of fat if right. you want that if you want that nice glossy restaurant quality sauce. Right. So it's like okay, just add a couple you know of butter treat, at the end. Treat yourself. Yeah. If you're already eating pasta. You love yourself. Yeah. So just don't go don't for like, it. Don't then punish yourself. <laughs> it, the first time, you know, I threw like a couple tablespoons of butter or whatever into, you know, just like a red sauce, you know, just like basic red sauce, The I, which I never would have done because it's like, oh, you've, you've only, you know, you've got your olive oil in there. I mean, just the power to make the sauce bind to the pasta yeah. with the pasta cooking liquid and bring everything all together. I remember having a, uh, a French chef instructor when I went to culinary school who, I can't remember which guy it was, but I remember him saying there's just nothing more, there's nothing more unpleasant than the flavor of olive oil and butter like together. And and I was really yo- like young then, but I remember being like, th- there is. And so I'm reminded of it all the time because I don't think that that's true at all. Like no. I love melting olive oil and butter together and it's delicious and that's one guaranteed thing to make people come into the kitchen. Whatever, my, fr- my husband will come in and be like, whatever you're making, it smells amazing. <laughs> I'm like, it's olive oil, butter, and garlic, and like nothing has even happened yet. So, so this brought that brings up another point of the pantry and the ingredients that we rely on. Some of which are kind of like nouveau, and some are like, yeah, this has been around forever. Anchovies. We talk about anchovies a lot, and we complain about anchovies a lot because currently we are we are being ruled by a, a <laughs> dictatorship i have to say that had, had that at one at one point one day the hammer came down and i there was a directive from adam rapaport who's not here today either so i can say whatever i want and he literally said every time anchovies are in a recipe they should be optional and he said that because Damn. he hates anchovies. And he talks about fighting with his own lovely wife who loves to put a little anchovy in the salad dressing or in the tomato sauce. He's like, not going to taste it. He's like, you know what? You always taste it. And we were like, really? They're always optional? Like, they they aren't always optional. So I'm on Team Chovy. What did- oh, big time. Love them. I mean, especially if you need to figure out a way to make like incredible pasta in 20 minutes, like happen in your life, then I mean, a tin of anchovies is definitely on your bench. And we have been talking about this more recently because, you know, I think the reason why some people don't like certain ingredients is because whatever they had growing up or their first introduction was a not good version. And anchovies is definitely one of those things that like the really the cheap ones are are don't taste as good as the nice ones. Right. So we've been talking about this recently of like, is it when is it worth it? Buy the nicer jar of anchovies. And I think uh, you I personally think you have to kind of use them quickly. There's like an mm. old tinned fish quality that kind of starts to take over. This could just be me like being totally, you know, psychotic about it. But there is like there is a, a beauty in like a freshly opened tin of anchovies. Maybe How the about reason. about the freshly opened jar? Yeah. Oh, sure. The jar. The you know, jar. The just jar. something about the jar makes it just seem. But just not too big a jar because I just don't think you yeah. want them hanging out kind of open and oxidizing and going from that lovely like blush pink, you know, in the oil to all of a sudden they go that kind of drab, you know, sort of like grayish brown. Even if they're in olive oil in the jar? Yep. Yeah. I have exactly. a whole thing about change. it. Oh, really? Yeah. I'll, I'll set up a test in the kitchen. I'm yeah. going I'm I'm to convert Claire. I feel it. I feel <laughs> she's really open to this line of thinking. Well, I mean, we, we were discussing this recently. Recently, I think that one of the reasons people don't like anchovies, just Carla, like you said, is they had a bad one. And right. and cheap anchovies can be obviously very fishy, kind of tinny, even a little bitter, cause yeah. especially because of how salty they are. Or if they're packed in crappy oil, too. Right. They can right. have a very off flavor right. of just And they've like... probably been open for a long time because <laughs> right. they got some big restaurant size can of them. Right. Boom. Good point. (laughs) I like buying the ones in the jar and not the huge size jar. They can be a little bit more expensive, but I like seeing, I like to see them. So that's another, you know. um, It can be an expensive habit. It can, but I just bought a, yeah, I didn't buy the Ortiz, but I was um, grocery shopping and I don't know how many ounces it was. Maybe it's a six ounce jar, but it was in the $12 range and I felt like great. And I opened them up last night actually to make a salad dressing. So, um, the we have some I don't know for for winning over skeptics I guess we're kind of like pretty committed to this idea that yeah. everyone who doesn't like them is wrong I just think <laughs> well that's kind of the argument I try to make to Adam 
And I was like, because you like Caesar dressing. He was like, no, I don't. I was like, you really don't. He really wow. doesn't like them, I think, really anywhere. I actually get offended when I go to restaurants and they say, and you order a Caesar and they say with anchovy. It's like, <laughs> it's not a Caesar Duh. without it. So right. yes, I do right. want the anchovy. But I, I think that for people who think, because I know I get that people don't like fishy fish flavor. Sure. I actually ha- happen to love fishy fish. So that Doesn't maybe makes me, you. right. That's maybe my own thing. But um, but it's also, anchovy just adds umami. It just adds like a salty, savory hit in the background if you use them properly. So it's like you might not like the look of the whole anchovy over your Greek salad or right. over your Caesar salad. But my guess is you've had the flavor before and you probably didn't notice it. And it, but it just adds that like background, right? Um, so I would say if you are the anchovy lover in your house and you are trying to make sure that the you know the person that you've decided to be with for the rest of your life comes around, maybe don't start out on like the pasta with sardines and raisins, you know, which sure. is like a Sardinian. That's a lot, but melting one fillet of a freshly opened jar into a nice tomato sauce mm-hmm. or an aglio olio or blending it into a nice creamy Caesar. Just, you know. Yeah. It just it's the gateway. It's, gateway. it's okay. Yeah. They don't have to be optional. I'm just saying. Yeah. Okay. So I like this on the ingredient tip because anchovies, you know, also not to invoke my mom again. I feel like she comes up every time I talk about food. But I grew up in, and she used to... S- sometimes for an afternoon snack have um a piece of bread or more often like a stoned wheat thin with butter Mm. and like a little anchovy filet on it and because that's what her grandfather would eat as a snack also so i they were just like around but something a little bit well it's you can't even say that this is nouveau but tahini as an ingredient that is not relegated to middle eastern food or in your hummus or drizzled over your falafel sandwich. I feel like we started putting recipes with tahini in savory food that weren't Middle Eastern food because we were following trends. But now it's just like, I don't know, is it here to stay? One thing, Carla, that I thought of when you were talking about how much our cooking has changed over the last seven years is all the things that have happened sort of in like the larger food culture. And one of them is the huge phenomenon of of Otolenghi and the popularity mm-hmm. of his cookbooks. And I think that that's done a lot to really familiarize people with Middle Eastern ingredients and make them widely available. It's like Whole Foods now stocks like um, sumac and, right. um, and spices that come from Middle Eastern cuisine and that you really didn't see here. Um, at a non-specialty store. And um, pomegranate molasses right. and yeah, things like that. That, right. that again sort of went from jumping from a restaurant experience to this home cook experience. Right, of, like you, like we, like growing up we maybe only had it because my mom made hummus. But we didn't eat it in sauces or um, like in other kinds of dishes. And now it's kind of entered the lexicon and it's, there's so many more brands, like we used to only have that, the Joyva, but now there's like tons and tons of brands and you see it everywhere. Um, Andy really likes that Beirut brand. It just says Beirut yeah. tahini on mm-hmm. it, comes in a glass jar. Yeah. And Sum, Sum is another brand Sum made in, is great. in Philly, which is really nice, um, not too bitter. I think sometimes, yeah, maybe people are a little um, put off because it, can be very very bitter but you know depending on the quality it can be also very smooth and delicious there's another one that i got recently at whole foods actually that um i hadn't seen before and it's kind of genius just because of the way tahini can separate a little bit like a natural peanut butter and it can be like really dense and kind of dry in the bottom of the jar and oily on top they have a a squeeze bottle one mm. like the squeeze oh, bottle yeah. of ketchup where the, the the thing is at the bottom it makes it easy for measuring yeah it's like oh clever yeah but speaking of nut butter i think that's another thing is the proliferation of non-peanut nut butters yeah it's like people look at it oh right because he needs ground sesame seeds and so when people started to look at it oh it's not really like a specialty ingredient it's just another kind of seed butter that made sense to a lot of people also so in april there's, I think there's some tahini in the ranch the dressing. Wedge, dr- uh, wedge salad. So yeah. Andy's got a, a wedge salad with a tahini ranch. So that's kind of 
um, you know, playing up the already creamy, rich, fatty, you know, smooth attributes of tahini. It has that depth. It's got, it should have a little sweetness, but also that nutty flavor. Um, and so this was a great, I thought, um, savory application of it. Also, sometimes people buy tahini to make one recipe and then you do, you have like 24 more ounces. And so realizing that you could sub it for Dijon in a vinaigrette and just use tahini instead, or like make Claire's um, marbled pound cake, which was using it in a sweet application, mm -hmm. which I feel like the tahini, the explosion of like tahini desserts is a whole other thing. Yeah, like peanut butter, it skews, can very easily go sweet or savory. So it's very versatile. Um, so this, this, the idea for that recipe came about just in like an internal food department meeting of like, you know, what are the desserts that we're really into and, and like to make at home? Um, so it kind of started off as the idea to do like a loaf cake, but with tahini as kind of like that um, unexpected flavor in there. And it, it was, it's a really fun recipe. So we also... But it doesn't look like an ordinary loaf cake. No, it has this swirl of black sesame. So you can find black tahini, which is obviously just same thing made from black sesame seeds. Um, it's a little harder to find. So for this recipe, you just use black sesame seeds that you grind up and then mix with a portion of the batter. It's a pretty basic um, like oil-based uh, quick bread recipe, um, which is nice. So you don't have to let butter soften. You don't have to do the creaming of the butter and sugar. So you can make it easily with a hand mixer as well as a stand mixer. So this definitely looks like something that you would see at like a really cool fourth wave coffee shop. Very and, cool. Let me you, know where that place is. Yeah, I know. I was going to say. I don't think I've found it yet. <laughs> and you would have to like where they cut the loaf cake into like one inch thick slices. Uh, yeah. And you're like, yeah, yeah, I'm going to have that because it's sugar crusted. It's got the seeds on top. It has this really rad swirl I know what it tastes like so I'm already you know very inclined to find it super appetizing but I feel like this was Chris Morocco has a uh, has a three three to four p.m. coffee and a snack yeah. habit. I feel like this was a thing that was just sort of oh, under. I would a piece squirrel of <laughs> slices of this away all over my station. Be pulling them out days later, like days yeah, after right. it had last well, appeared in the kitchen. And because it's oil based, it keeps for a very long time. So very it actually long. improves the longer you let it sit. Um, and the black sesame swirl it makes another thing I think makes this feel a little more modern is that it's really savory. Yeah. It's very it's savory. Sweet, it's not it's, sweet. it's not too sweet at all cuz I'm super sensitive to that. Right. It's like has this deepness of flavor that is so much beyond just like a peanut butter cookie. Yeah, like when we first tried it we were like we really like it. It's weird in a good way like it was just sort of because it's such a kind of new mix of savory and sweet we're yeah like we're like we can't stop eating it we're not really sure what it is i know it's like i don't know if i want to put a cucumber on it or <laughs> right. if i want to push right. it like i think we did you did so we added a little more sugar. sugar yeah just because um it makes that nice like crunchy topping and everything but i think that that's the trend that we're seeing in desserts is just a little bit of a step away from ultra sweet desserts right with not so much sugar not to say that they are totally on the savory side right but just incorporating more savory flavors into the dessert right and tahini i think is pairs really nicely also in like a shortbread type of cookie it's something that's like mm -hmm. a little i don't know not hitting you over the head um my child is allergic to sesame so sadly mm. although he <laughs> did accidentally get a few sesame seeds in a sushi roll that like we we had said you know no sesame but they there were like three seeds and he freaked out, but he was totally fine. Wow. So it was good. Um, all right. So taking savory into sweetness in another way, I'm looking at this picture of whole grain pancakes, which I think when we started talking about like how we cook, the way that gr whole grains, grain bowls, you know, it was almost like the grain bowl became a thing and then everybody was cooking whole grains and then wheat berries kind of exploded. And then you had the quinoa just doesn't go away and they're Chia seeds were getting into things, and it was like Bob's Red Mill. Bob's Red Mill took over the whole millet <laughs> was frika. It's all the all of the grains. Um, and a piece of advice that we've given out many, many times in many different kinds of stories is, you know, if you do one little bit of meal prep on the weekend, cooking a big batch of grains is one of the great things that you can do because you can throw them in soup and you can make a grain bowl out of them. You can make a stir fry, which Claire made a stir fry with kimchi, another one of our like favorite, favorite ingredients. Um, but these pancakes have a story. 
Yeah, they do. I mean, is, should I? Can I go deep? I wish you would. All right. Um, so I was. We were out in uh, in California with my family. Um, we were eating breakfast at Jelena, and um, you know, we're, it's always a question of like what our kids are going to eat like at a restaurant like that. It's like kind of super cool, you know, trendy, like new American, but like with like decidedly California kind of vibes. Yeah, in for there. whoever hasn't been to Jelena and Justa in Venice, uh, Chef Travis Lett, um just really kind of nails that like. Super cool, beachy, surfy, healthy, Healthy-ish. but not too healthy, but like groovy. It's Trey LA. Yeah. Yeah. So we so we ordered the whole, you know, quote, whole grain pancakes or nine grain pancakes thinking, great, at least like our kids will eat pancakes. You know, if anything they can dip in syrup, you know, they're in. <laughs> so out comes this pancake that's like, you know, the size of like a dinner plate. And I, I, you know, uh, my older son, Alec, takes a bite and just like immediately comes back out, you know, like mom, <laughs> mom, mom's hand shoots out to receive <laughs> the offending bite of pancake, you know, like lightning quick. And and then and then I take a bite and then I, I see why he had an issue with it for, you know, a kid who has a, a, a bit texture averse. The, the, the grains were just cooked grains that were in the pancake. Like the pancake itself was was kind of light and fluffy. And I'm sure there was some whole grain flour mixed into the batter but what really set the pancake apart was like the crispy grains you know like toasted crispy quinoa and like you know chewy things like wheat berries (laughs) spelt what have you that was in there so it was just like this riot of all these like chewy you know kind of like light airy uh, textures so yeah when we wanted to look at pancakes um, you know and kind of like what pancakes mean to us now that's that's the pancake that I think of. So instead of, you know, when I was growing up, my mom, oh my God, with like the whole wheat flour, it was just like, you know, mom, like <laughs> just just not too much whole wheat flour in the pancakes, please, yeah. you know. But we she'd always whack it in there. Like yogurt pancake phase that she just loved because they were tangy and sour. I was like, can I <laughs> just, <laughs> just have a normal just pancake? Have a normal pan- yeah, my mom was the same way. She's just always trying to sneak that in however she could. So what we realized for, with this pancake, the the secret is really just like, you know, sure, eat your eat your whole grains like in your pancakes, but like keep them in whole grain, you know, cooked whole grain form. You know, let the pancake, the actual batter, you know, the pancakey matrix just be a light, fluffy, buttermilky, you know, with a little bit of whole wheat flour, what have you, you know, just for like a little and bit of And not like crazy sweetened and either. Not crazy Crazy sweetened, you know, and and this is like a pancake, you know, we envisioned it as like, you know, this is the pancake you share. This is the pancake that like gives Mm -hmm. you the amount of pancake you want at brunch, which is about like, you know, one small one or a a wedge of a larger one. This is the pancake to like order for the table. Yeah. Right. I have to say, when Chris made this in the kitchen, I freaked out because I actually do not like pancakes. I strongly dislike pancakes. And it's mostly (laughs) because every time I eat them. I feel horrible afterwards. Right, like it's like they're kind of not good enough to for me to justify eating because then it's like I feel right. It's awful. like eating a muffin, basically. Yeah, yeah. It's like all the white flour and like I have no problem with white flour because I bake with it everywhere else. But just something about pancakes, like it doesn't do it for me. And then I tried this a piece of this big pancake that Chris made, and I flipped out because flipped the, the out, texture, yeah. Flip the <laughs> the texture of the cooked grains, like the they were so chewy. It, like it was so irresistible and I ate so much of it fluffy but like not dense you would expect it to be dense um, but like Pancakes all the chewiness from the whole grains was so so delicious and fun to eat and this sounds like silly to say but pancakes are, are having a comeback too there's the ones everybody's talking about the that that brunch pancake at um Chez Matant. Oh yes, yes. That they're they're cooked really hard. They're Mm -hmm. like kind of um, almost burnt on the surface. Yeah, sounds really yummy too. Chris, maybe stand up to that. Maybe you can quickly summarize your genius like pot of cooked grains that you make in the rice cooker. Oh yeah, just as a side note, I mean, because you know, I we didn't we didn't. We do cook grains pretty much every single day in the test kitchen right. as well. We, but just, it is a pain to cook a whole bunch of them, like different kinds it's that true. have different cook right. times. And I think those like, you know, you know, chefs were kind of like driving the boat in terms of like part of like the whole grain kind of revolution yes. in a way. And it was like, of course, if you're a chef, you're going to have one pot for your farro and one pot for your quinoa and, you know, one pot for this and one pot for your yeah, rye one and spelt. Yeah, one chef and, for making sauce and yeah. a different guy who but just slices vegetables. What we figured out is like you can cook most of them together and it's fine you maybe just don't mix your quinoa and your quick cooking whole grains with like your longer cooking whole grains but like a little bit of farro wheat berries spelt rye 
you know, they're all big pretty wook. much taking just the put same. it all in the same pot or, you know, cook it in your rice cooker on the brown rice setting. Like we don't like brown rice cooked on brown rice setting, but we <laughs> sure as heck like whole grains cooked in the brown it's, rice setting. And it's just one of those things that like if you cook the grains, you will find a way to use them. So mm -hmm. in the test kitchen, it's often just we no one is even really thinking about what family meal is going to be, but the grains are going to be there. And if I'm cooking grains to put into soup that which I did yesterday at home making lentil soup I just I'm gonna make twice as much as I actually need and bank the other half because yeah you don't know if you're gonna come home and do a stir fry or you might come home another night and have breakfast for dinner totally you just don't know I, I the stir fried whole grain thing it's so is good so good so there's what though so a trick about that so we've got our rice cooker um, being utilized now for multiple different kinds of grains but Claire when you were doing the stir-fried um, stir-fried whole grains unlike white rice there's a trick there was a you had a trick for keeping them from getting too chewy right because with whole grains that have that the hull which is the whole point is that they haven't been stripped of any of their bran like on the rice cooker when you're doing them some of them can kind of stay like a little firmer and some of them can kind of get blown out a little bit so right. you have like a mix of textures but generally when you're steamy cooking me in that environment right um but you know if you're cooking whole grains like barley or wheat berries they have like that hull outside you can cook it for an hour and it's still it's cooked it's done but it's still pretty chewy and as it sits out that chewiness kind of only increases as the outside dries a little bit so it's kind of the opposite of cooking white rice where you're not really trying to crisp the outside. You're actually just trying to rehydrate and, in fact, like soften that hull a little bit because so they're, they're plenty chewy. After they're cooked and you're going to stir fry them. Yeah, let's, you've leftovers. They've been sitting around in your fridge for a couple days and you want to use them up. Um, stir frying, like you don't want to fry too hard the outside of the grain because you're just going to toughen it even more. And it's like I love whole grains, but there is a certain point where like – like, I would like Enough to stop chewing, chewing right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like a lot for your jaw. So this was really just, a, it, but it makes it easy. It's like you're not really cooking again over a super high heat. You're right. not really like frying anything per se. You're really just adding the whole grains and a little bit of liquid. So in the case of this recipe, it's soy sauce and some of the juice from the jar of kimchi. Um, and it's really like kind of rehydrating and getting absorbed by the grains. So right. it, it, it's, it makes them really flavorful and it softens them a little bit. Whereas with like white rice or quinoa, I feel like you could you could get a nice crunchy outer mm -hmm. surface and have tender in the middle. The problem with the whole grain is that the outside is going to get so crisp that you can't, you're not getting to, to right. that chewy right. middle. It can get slightly unpleasant. Right. So finishing with something liquidy, mm -hmm. like re-steams the whole thing. Exactly. Yeah. I don't know. I think we're making a case also for cooking things over medium. There was like a podcast I was listening to a long time ago with Tom Colicchio who was saying that one, some of the advice, like what he has to do to train new cooks is to teach them not to cook everything over high. It's right. sort of like you don't have to blast everything. I think that's something that is like kind of standard practice in restaurants. Yeah. It's like super high heat cooking. Super high, and super I get fast. It. I get it depending on, you know, for, you know, you're like on a line, you're trying to cook proteins yeah. and like do a good job and do it quickly. But at home... I don't know. It's, I, it's not. I've it's started, not the way to go. I've started doing that more at home with medium heat because I love to have to start something and then go back to the cutting board and work on the next mm -hmm. part of it. Whatever's being chopped or going to get added or making a salad dressing, and kind of having stuff riding on medium. Certain things, obviously, like like I had a sofrito going for the soup yesterday. I was like, I could cook this really quickly standing there and stirring it the whole time. Or I could go medium low, get the lid on halfway, let it really sweat. And what was I cutting on the other side of the world? I think I was cleaning lettuce or something. And everything worked out. It was a good experience. Yeah. yeah. I think there's a time and place for high heat, but it you don't have to cook. And not every time you cook, you shouldn't be blasting the burner under your pan. Right. Well, we could talk about tools. I think we should talk about tools. Mm -hmm. As much as I want to tell you guys all of my new slogans that I came up with for lamb. Really? I was ready to defend Andy's l l larb with no color on it <laughs> and talk about right, meat salad meat. as being the, the philosophical mm -hmm. approach there. But well, we can talk about tools, too. It was delicious larb. Which, it was good larb. And he was like, you can't. We love you, Andy. <laughs> yeah. Who's not here today. Um 
he did a pork larb and he was very adamant, wasn't he, that there would be no color on the ground nope. beef. And so again, the medium cooking, but I think he was right because if you take tiny little pieces of ground meat and you, not in a burger formation, but you know, just gr ground meat for larb and get a ton of color on them, it's gonna be dry. I, I see values to both approaches. I think Andy did a good job defending his and he ha he made a recipe to back up his way, you know, where it's just like super nicely, beautifully dressed, like pieces of pork, you know, little pork or beef. I can't remember what he used. Meat but salad. Meat salad, you know, that he's serving on super crunchy uh, wedges of uh, cabbage. Yeah, I liked that it that this larb was cabbage and not lettuces um, because the cabbage does just it's almost like a crunchy top like it's a it's a vegetable taco yeah <laughs> has a lot of integrity and isn't going to welt wilt out on like a super hot super hot day i had so many good lamb slogans lamb the other red meat lamb it's what's for dinner uh life on the lamb <laughs> it's, it's not for dinner for, <laughs> for me <laughs> i I'm, no. I'm lamb lamb's never been uh the one for me mm -hmm. that's just, okay yeah. But lamb meatballs, you could make these lamb meatballs with beef. Yeah, totally. If you had to. You yeah. made lamb larb. That lamb larb was good. Yeah, and that one I did brown. I know, but it has so much fat. It had so much fat. Yeah, ground lamb has a lot of fat. And we also, we put it in prep school, the method for browning ground meat, which is basically to kind of like make it into smash burgers. Right, right. on one side. On, and on one side. And that's another thing for cooking at home is like when you brown something, Yeah, I do think people sometimes tend to overcook their protein because they're trying to brown all the sides. Yeah. This is mm. something we've done. And basically it's like just brown one side. Yeah. Like you don't, you know, you just want to develop some flavor. Totally. You don't have to go crazy. And, and also that second side is never going to get as brown anyway. Right. Just I mean, give, it could, right. Because it it's releasing you know? liquid and yeah. everything. So it's, just go, go hard on the first side and then, and then, and then you you're get good. the best mix of textures because you have like the crispy, but still like the juicy and the, on the other side. Right. It's the best of both worlds. Agreed. It's like the middle, the first bite into a burger. Um, there are some tools in here that I think are kind of linked up intrinsically with the way we cook now. And I'll start with one that's a little bit more controversial and might take a little bit of convincing, which is a mandolin. Oh, no mm. convincing needed for me. <laughs> I know you're convinced. <laughs> We're all convinced. But I but can make a good case. Why should a normal person because you hear didn't your mom was it your mom oh, who just yeah. like cut herself horribly really? on a oh, brand no. new mandolin uh. it was bad okay <laughs> well, i won't i won't go into detail i thought you were gonna say she cut herself on a knife and she should have been using a mandolin no, no. probably the <laughs> no. other way when it comes to claire's mom yeah so <laughs> okay but i recently so i had a mandolin at home that i never used because it had like too many moving parts mm -hmm. so i was recently, it that big stainless steel one it was the oxo one I, okay. I really love oxo products i don't think they got it right on the mandolin because really like it's simple yeah so i was at corin which is near our office um which is like all professional japanese cookware mostly knives Amazing um, it's place. incredible and i was there for a different reason and i was like i, I really want this ben Renner mandolin it's what we use in the kitchen it was like 25 dollars. it was They're so much less expensive. expensive than i thought it was going to be so that's a check in the plus column it's just you can cut so fast and something i hear from people is like they like our recipes they like cooking but the prep takes them a really long time like just to, you know cut an onion like we you know, you do it every day. You can do it pretty quickly, but I think it does take the home cook a lot longer than we think. Yeah, to mm. you know, to like prep vegetables and stuff. And a mandolin is like you can make a beautiful shaved salad so quickly, but you do have to practice like good common sense and safety. Yeah. So when I use a mandolin, I use I don't grip the food with my fingers. I mean, you can use the grip that comes with. It's like a little spiky yes. grip that can you can like spear and that into is the food. The best way to make sure that you don't hurt yourself yeah. is I to guess use just the use the guard that comes with right. it. And if you don't want to, you can get protective gloves, which I highly recommend because, like, you know, you won't you won't like pierce the skin even right. if your hand runs into the blade. Right. Um, but when I'm using it, I use the palm of my hand to kind of like. At, apply pressure to whatever I'm cutting. Maybe it's like a piece of fennel that I'm shaving. Yeah. Someone was saying the other day too, holding the food with um, with a folded up uh, kitchen towel. If it doesn't get in the way. Yeah. Yeah. If it's yeah, small totally. enough and you fold it up small enough. And as, my as other a mandolin rule is like when it starts, when the piece of food starts to get small enough yeah. that you're Don't worried about it, it, just move on. Sometimes I'll finish like just the little. It. Yeah. Or if it's like the little, you know, kind of end piece of the of the onion then I let that 
go drop onto the cutting board and mm-hmm. I'll just cut through it with my knife mm-hmm. the last few strokes, yeah. you know? But it's great for garlic. It's great for thinly slicing onions. It's amazing for cucumber, little cu- sliced cucumbers for a beautiful cucumber toast. Yeah. Um, and also for the shave salads that like prove you don't need lettuce to make a salad. Right. I hate slicing garlic more than anything, but I will do it. The only time I'll do it is for like an olio olio mm-hmm. for pasta. And I will use a mandolin because you get perfectly even slices every time. And so they all cook at the, and brown at the same rate. And if you're doing garlic, like, I, you know, you're staying really close to the blade and only making very yeah. short little movements. So right. you're at very low risk of like there's no momentum, really. So you're not going to cut yourself even if the blade is really sharp. Right. But it is a thing that I'll get out because I just it's like too much of a pain to cut it with a knife. Yeah. And so it just makes such quick work of like really tedious kitchen tasks. So we want you to have mandolins in your tool drawers, guys. Just, you know, you embrace the microplane, just embrace yeah, to the Yeah, to say nothing of the julienne, which is the most annoying cut in the whole world. Also, but just get rid of that little part of the thing. Do you use that? A dip, yeah, for like... Really? I when hate that. It's, it's, it's there's a certain solving. kind of shred, you know, mm-hmm. like the, the, the carrot, shredded carrot, carrot salad. Carrots are annoying to me because they're too hard. But like a daikon, like something a, a little bit softer. But there's just like to get that it's, right texture where it's like, you know, a box grater, the, those big holes would just sh- blast that vegetable yeah. part, you know, and like release too much Makes water. It, right. You right, know, course. like sharp blade mandolin with the teeth attachment. I mean, there's kind of no substitute for it as far as I'm concerned, unless like, y- you know, you start by making big long cuts That's on a mandolin do. and then do, do the, 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 the cross cuts, you know, like with a by hand with a I knife. I can't mm-hmm. deal with shoving it through the little Julianne thing. Yeah. Well, but. if the teeth start getting all bent and everything and you're applying too much pressure <laughs> to try to force the carrots through there. And plus, like, that's a situation where you want big carrots. You, mm-hmm. A big carrot keeps your hand kind of far away, gets you good yield, you know. So the so the other tool that I think people don't have in the kitchen but should, and you will touch it and use it every single day, not for cakes, not just for cakes, the cake tester, which is... Standard issue, first cook in a restaurant equipment that takes every guesswork out of, you know, every single recipe that says cook until tender when pierced. Pierce it with a cake tester. It is like there's nothing better for checking whether a potato is done. Yeah, I mean, I understand the temptation to test things with using the tip of a paring knife, but the, the fact is, like, it's a it's a sharp point of a knife. It would have gone through it whether it was it was if <laughs> it was totally point. raw, uh-huh. you know, and un- completely uncooked. Right. You know, whereas a cake tester gives you a little bit better feedback, like, oh, like a cake tester, it's actually like kind of hard to get through a, a, a raw potato with yeah, it, you know, true. before you like can. bending it or right. a squash or. You know, um, I don't whatever carrots. else. You know, carrots center. Um, you know, just going into the center of a fish and feeling if the if the fish in the middle is still undercooked, it's going to push back. It's yeah. like you're going to feel little pops of resistance as you get through those bands of uh, of collagen in the yeah. fish, and, and just fishing around in a stew or whatever. Just love a cake tester. Yeah. Just keep it propped up in your giant bowl of kosher salt, which you should have right next yeah. to the stove too. All right, I just am going to finish by saying that we loved working on this issue. It was really fun. We really believe in every recipe, and we really, really, really want you guys to share um, your pictures with us and what you're cooking and gram us and tweet at us, and we can't wait to see what it looks like in your own homes. Totally. Thanks, Carla. Thank you. My pleasure. The Bon Appetit Foodcast is produced by Carrie Polis and Christina Che and produced and edited by Emma Wartsman. Our theme music is by Nathaniel Wartsman. We have new episodes every Wednesday, and if you want to tell us about this or any other episode, email us at bonappetitfoodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.